Welcome back to Know Thyself History. Kind of dramatic intro music there for a dramatic topic. As you study history, you come across incidents, little vignettes, that will convey to you two contrary ideas about human nature. On the one hand, you come across incidents that convince you that human beings are incredibly tough, adaptable, resilient creatures. An adult, healthy human is very tough to kill. And if you just look at some of the feats of human survival that are all over the pages of history, by the way, it's easy to get confirmation for that impression. I'll just give you a few examples. The first is the case of Alan McGee. Alan is a turret gunner on a B-17 bomber in World War II. They're flying a mission over France when Nazi fighter planes come and shoot off part of the wing of his B-17 flying fortress. And the plane begins its death spiral toward the ground. McGee was actually wounded in the fighter attack of his B-17, but somehow he manages to keep his composure and climb out of the ball turret into the body of the plane, even as it's careening toward the ground. He looks around for his parachute, finds it, sees that it's been terribly damaged in the attack. Totally useless. So at that point, he has two equally bad options, I guess. One is he could just grab onto something in the plane and white-knuckle his way down to the ground. The other option is to jump. And McGee takes the second option. He jumps out of the plane at 22,000 feet, over four miles in the air. He has no parachute. He goes unconscious almost immediately, so it's basically his body just careening through the air. He lands on the roof of the St. Nazaire railway station, crashes through the glass ceiling of that roof, lands on the floor of the station, and that's where rescuers find him. Still has a pulse, still breathing. He lives through the entire event, 22,000 feet without a parachute. And if that seems a little hard to believe, a little unreal, I've got one that's even more unreal. The story of Vesna Vulovic. Vesna Vulovic was a Serbian flight attendant. She's in a jet at 33,000 plus feet in 1972. A suitcase bomb goes off in the back of the jet, and the plane is ripped apart. It crashes to the ground. Some distance away, Vesna Vulovic is found, having fallen 33,330 feet into a snowbank. And somehow, incomprehensibly, she lives. She has a skull fracture. She's in a coma for a few days. She's hospitalized for weeks, but she has no memory of the event whatsoever. And when you talk about resiliency, she has no qualms whatsoever about going right back to work as a flight attendant. But by this time, of course, she's famous, so the airline does not put her back on airplanes, thinking that the passengers would suffer a little trauma by association seeing her. On a different note, there's a man named Forthman Murph, did not make that name up. He is a self-proclaimed chainsaw enthusiast. You did not know there was such a thing. People will get excited when they see a nice Husqvarna. Ooh, look at that Ryobi over there. Anyway, that's Forthman Murph, chainsaw enthusiast. He's out cutting down trees when one of the trees strikes him on the head and knocks him into a ditch. That tree goes on to knock down another tree, which lands on Forthman, crushes his leg, knocks him out briefly. When Mr. Murph awakens, he realizes that he has bigger problems than a broken leg. He's fallen neck first onto the still-running chainsaw and that it's busy cutting its way through his neck. Well, Mr. Murph is very angry about this chainsaw cutting its way through his neck. He says this, quote, It made me mad, and I just threw that saw off. The blood wasn't coming out in spurts, so I thought I might have a chance. 
end quote. So he's ticked off. He throws the chainsaw away. In the meantime, the chainsaw has cut through his esophagus and his trachea. His leg is shattered. He crawls his way to a truck, drives one mile to a neighbor's house, and then is driven 17 miles to a hospital where he is just fine. He lives through the entire thing. He has to have surgery to repair his trachea, his windpipe, his crushed leg. But you realize that this chainsaw went through everything in his neck except the major arteries and his spine. That he had to crawl with a crushed leg while holding the veins in his neck, keeping him from bleeding out, occasionally having to remove the hand and letting the wound bleed so that he didn't choke to death on his own blood. This is one of the toughest weirdos who ever lived. This is the Revenant Chainsaw Edition. And it's not just these events, these extreme shock and trauma events that convince you that people are pretty tough. You look at the periods of deprivation people can endure and live. In 1979, a 17-year-old Austrian named Andreas Mihavich is arrested, locked into a holding cell. And there he is, forgotten, for 18 straight days. At some point, something stirs in the dim mind of his jailers, and they realize that they've locked this kid into a cell with no food and no water for 18 days. They rush back to the cell, fully expecting to find him dead. But to their surprise, when they open the cell, they find a very dehydrated, very parched Andreas Mihavich, but still alive, having set the record for going without water that we know of. Of course, some bad sports say that it wasn't a legitimate record. After all, the cell was damp. Maybe he was licking moisture off the concrete walls of his cell. Either way, we have to admit, that's a prodigious act of survival. Human beings can go even longer without food. You know, I outlined in our Stranded Cannibals edition what happens during times of starvation. But the take-home point is that humans evolved as hunter-foragers. So we had to be able to range over large areas in search of game while going without food and still function. Now, I've got to be careful how I say this next part, but really, there's serious fatal ethical concerns about trying to set a record for staying alive without eating. So, in a way, everything we know about the subject, we owe to the British. (laughs) That's terrible. But let's look at the record. Gandhi is famous for going without food. His longest hunger strike is 21 days, and he recovered from that with no ill effects, skinny as he was. The hunger strikers at the Mays Prison near Belfast in the 1980s, more than doubled Gandhi's time. They lasted between 45 and 66 agonizing days, but these weren't pure fasts. For example, Bobby Sands, who lasted 66 excruciating days during his hunger strike, caught the attention of the entire world, would supplement his water with occasional spoonfuls of salt. He would have died much sooner if it hadn't been for that salt. And believe it or not, that 66 days isn't even the record. You have to go back to 1920. The mayor of Cork, an Irish poet and playwright named Terence McSweeney, was imprisoned during the Irish War of Independence. He began a hunger strike that would go on for two and a half months, 74 torturous days with no food and no water before he died. So these are astounding cases. They're amazing. But in a way, they're a little off topic because this episode is supposed to be about what people can survive, not how long people can take before they die. So at some point during these hunger strikes, we have to assume that the organ damage was too severe. It was irreversible. And we don't really know at what point that occurs. You'll see various swamis and mystics and breatharians who claim that they haven't eaten for several years. But these aren't the claims of serious people. Those aren't just dubious claims. They're downright goofy. So I'm going to move away from those to a new topic, one that I hope you didn't know. This is something I didn't know before I began researching this episode. You can stay awake so long that you die. 
not just get tired, not just go a little nuts, you will die. We know this from a series of what I consider particularly brutal rat studies. Scientists through a bunch of sadistic contrivances kept rats awake for several days at a time, and after the rats had been awake for a certain period of time, usually close to two weeks, their metabolisms would just go through the roof. Stress hormone levels would get so high that the rats would burn up and die. So I don't encourage anyone to try to challenge Randy Gardner's record. The record for this event is held by Randy Gardner. Believe it or not, he's a 17-year-old high school student, apparently a somewhat overzealous one, because for a science project at his high school, he stays awake for 11 straight days. Of course, he would have been zombified by day three and pretty much catatonic by day 11, but he survived. No ill effects that we can discern. This far in the podcast, I've been talking about these prodigious feats of survival. But even in our everyday lives, we're capable of living in a variety of climates and conditions. And some of it is a little surprising. We can live in any temperature between 50 and 150 degrees as long as the climate is dry enough. I was a little surprised about that 50 degrees. I remember reading the Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn. And he described his Siberian barracks as being about 50 degrees at night. And even with blankets, that was a form of torture. So it surprises me that humans can live in 50-degree weather indefinitely, but they can. Of course, I need to include a little proviso. These are healthy adult human beings. Aging or sickness or weakness or malnutrition can diminish your ability to dissipate heat or to shiver to preserve your body's heat. And so, of course, that range of temperatures that you can tolerate narrows significantly. The key is that you have to keep your body's core temperature between 70 degrees Fahrenheit and 106 degrees Fahrenheit. Below 70, biochemical reactions necessary to sustain life can't be performed. Above 106, cells just start to die. Of course, like everything else, there are people who exceed these average limitations. In 1999, a 29-year-old female named Anna Bagelholm was skiing in Norway. She lost control of her skis and landed on her back on an ice-covered stream. What happened next came right out of a nightmare. The ice opened up, her clothes begin to get soaked, her head and torso are pulled under the ice. So she is wedged in under a thick layer of ice and can't get out. She survives by finding an air pocket under the ice as her body temperature plummets. She's found several minutes later by two friends who are skiing with her, but only her skis and feet are sticking up out of the ice. The ice is now over seven inches thick around Anna, and they can't pull her out. They go get help. Rescuers arrive and begin working on extracting Anna from the stream. 40 minutes into their work, Anna's heart stopped beating. She has suffered complete circulatory arrest. They don't get her out of the ice for 40 more minutes. All in all, she spent 80 minutes submerged under the ice. By the time they managed to get her out, her core body temperature is below 57 degrees Fahrenheit, one of the lowest temperatures ever recorded from which somebody actually recovered. And she did recover. She was in a coma for 10 days. When she woke up, she was paralyzed from the neck down. She's in the ICU for almost two months, and by the end of it, she only has lost function in her fingertips and toes, to some extent. Fair trade-off, if you ask me. The Dutch Iceman, Wim Hof, I didn't call him the Dutch Iceman. I think that's what he goes by. He has survived an hour and 44 minutes submerged in ice water. Zero degrees Celsius, hour 44 minutes. Of course, his head is above water, and he's practicing his mystical Tibetan inner fire breathing technique. But it's still a pretty impressive feat. I'd be dead like five times over. So much for temperature. What about pressure? At normal sea level, 
there's about 14, 15 pounds of atmosphere pushing down on every single square inch of your body. So that's basically a bowling ball on every inch of your body. And that's not those little pink ones that you get so you can see how fast you can roll it. That's the big black ones. So when you add up all those inches of surface area, at sea level, the average human has about 2,200 pounds pushing down on their head and shoulders, about the weight of a car. But that pressure is all balanced, and we don't even notice it. In fact, humans can tolerate amazing levels of atmospheric pressure, as long as they have a little time to adapt. Humans have survived dives to 33 atmospheres of pressure. That's 33 times sea level atmospheric pressure. So people can hold up for quite a while under a tremendous amount of pressure. The limiting factor, aside from breathing toxic gases to stay that deep, the limiting factor seems to be avascular necrosis, lack of circulation, tissue death. So the fine capillaries can't stay open under pressures that high. Blood is restricted, tissue dies. Now I'm going to get a little tedious here for a moment. Humans need oxygen, we know that. The atmospheric content of oxygen is 21.9%, so right around 22%. So to see how much oxygen we can drive into our lungs and our capillaries, you combine that 22% with the atmospheric pressure. As we said, it's about 15 pounds per square inch. Now, as you go up in altitude, you still have 22% oxygen, but the pressure in the atmosphere makes it more and more difficult for you to assimilate that oxygen, to take it into your lungs, get it into your capillaries. And it's this pressure of oxygen that's the primary limiting factor of the altitude at which people can live. The pressure of oxygen at 4,000 meters, at just over 12,000 feet, is one-half what it is at sea level. At that altitude, people can live, and people do live. Problem is, it's almost impossible to reproduce. It's impossible to have babies above 12,500 feet. And the problem is not that the babies, the infants, die after they're born. The problem is there's just not enough oxygen to have a normal pregnancy, a normal gestation. Once you get to that rarefied area of the Earth above 26,000 feet, above 8,000 meters, you're in what's called the death zone. At 26,000 feet, one-fourth the amount of oxygen you could access at sea level is available to you. So essentially, they call it the death zone because you start dying as soon as you cross that line. You can't get enough oxygen to sustain life long term. People who have climbed these high peaks describe it as being on a treadmill while trying to breathe through a straw. So you can't survive very long when you're working that hard just to get oxygen to your tissue. You are slowly dying the entire time you're above that altitude. And if you stay dying long enough, if you don't get to the top of Everest and back down to a reasonable oxygen pressure soon enough, you will be dead. Real earth-shattering insight for you there from the Know Thyself History podcast. Now, the point that I was trying to make when I began this little catalog of human survival feats and abilities is that you can get the impression that human beings are incredibly tough, adaptable, durable, resilient, all of those things. But then if you take a step back and you put it all into perspective, you can't help but be left with the contrary impression, that we're not all that tough and durable, that our storied feats of adaptability, our resiliency, our toughness, is very provincial, very limited in scope, that we're creatures of a certain, very narrow time and place, and this sphere that we can exist in is just a minuscule fraction of the possible conditions that exist in the universe. So aside from those extreme feats that I referenced above, human survivability in periods of deprivation usually follows the rule of threes. Now it's likely that you've never heard of the rule of threes, but once you hear it, it's kind of hard to forget. It's kind of intuitive. People can survive three minutes without air, three days without water, and three weeks without food. 
Now look, it's entirely possible that you can exceed those values, but you wouldn't want to bet your life on it. Beyond the rule of threes, there's no guarantee. If you raise us above or below a certain temperature for any length of time, if you put us under too much pressure, if you expose us to too much radiation, we can't survive. To really get an idea of how frail we are, let's just compare us to the lowly water bear. They're really called tardigrades, but calling them a water bear or a moss pig is a lot more fun, and they kind of look like little bear pigs. But don't let their cute looks fool you. These are tough little honey badgers. These are the toughest animals that we know of. One half millimeter long bugs. Nobody knows where they came from. They could have come from outer space for all we know. Well, that's exaggerating. But they seemed to evolve from nothing else. And they can assimilate portions of DNA from other creatures into their own DNA. And they are truly hard to kill. They can live 10 years completely, 100% dried up, desiccated of all water. Just drop a few drops on them and they come right back to life. They can survive without food or water for 30 years. They can withstand pressure 6,000 times greater than atmospheric pressure. Think about that. That's 44 tons per square inch, 60 times greater than the pressure at the bottom of Challenger Deep, the deepest part of the ocean. They can take 1,000 times the radiation of any other animal. And their cold tolerance is off the charts, too. They can live for years at negative 20 Celsius. They can live for days at negative 200 degrees Celsius. And get this, this is mind-boggling. They can live at one degree above absolute zero. So absolute zero is negative 273 degrees Celsius. They can live at negative 272 degrees Celsius for minutes at a time. That's unfathomable. They can live for 10 days in the super frozen, oxygen-deprived radiation bath known as outer space, days at a time, in the vacuum of space. So it's no wonder that they've survived five mass extinctions already. And forget cockroaches, water bears will survive nuclear wars, and they'll most likely be the last species in existence, you know, as the sun is expanding toward the Earth in about 7 billion years. So compared to the feats of water bears and many other creatures, frankly, we are extremely fragile indeed. Our Earth is two-thirds water. We can't live there. Of the landmass, only two-thirds of it is inhabitable. So one-third of the land on our planet is uninhabitable. And yet our planet is the only place we know of where we can survive. The next landmass is the moon, about 250,000 miles away. We can't live there. Go another 160 million miles, you get to Venus. We can't live there because the pressure of the atmosphere is about the same as if we were 3,000 feet underwater. And the temperature is a balmy 872 degrees Fahrenheit all the way around the planet. North Pole, South Pole, Equator, 872 degrees. When I think about how small and isolated we are on this planet, how tenuous our existence is, it's a little unnerving. Let's say you got on a spaceship capable of traveling at the speed of light. Light speed. It would take you 1.87 years, almost two years, to get to the Oort cloud at the edge of our solar system. It would take you 4.22 years to get to the nearest star, Proxima Centauri. Let's say you continue traveling at the speed of light. You wouldn't come to the edge of our galaxy, the Milky Way, for 24,000 years. That's the soonest you could exit our galaxy, 24,000 years at the speed of light. You wouldn't come to the next galaxy, the closest galaxy to ours, for 2.5 million years. To get out of the supercluster that we're part of, the Laniakea supercluster, would take you hundreds of millions of years. 
and you wouldn't get to the edge of the known universe for 46.5 billion years. So I'm not really sure why I'm telling you all this. Somewhere in all that, there may be billions of places in all that vastness on which we're capable of surviving. But so far, this is the only place we know of. And frankly, our survival here is a little tenuous as well. Without some serious technological enhancement, we couldn't survive in much of the world. The temperature in Iran in 2006 got to 160 degrees Fahrenheit. The temperature at Vostok Station in Antarctica routinely dips to negative 128. So as hostile to human life as those places are, they're nothing compared to the rest of the universe. If you fly 5,000 light years toward the Boomerang Nebula, you come to a place where the temperature is one degree above absolute zero, the coldest place in the universe. If you aim for the constellation Virgo and you fly 5,000 light years away, you'll reach the hottest known place in the universe. There the temperature is 300 million degrees Celsius. That's a three with eight zeros after it. But in the instant just after the Big Bang, the temperature of the universe was 1.8 octillion degrees. That's 1.8 with 27 zeros behind it. We have this one tiny arc, this one little oasis of a planet capable of sustaining our lives in a vast universe that is more than capable of snuffing them out. We really have no other options, do we? So you would think that one of humankind's primary concerns would be to preserve this oasis, keep this arc afloat. One of the things that happens, though, is that the Earth changes so slowly compared to a human lifespan that it's very easy to get the impression that it's always been the same. And certainly we can find evidence of that in ancient writings. So the book of Ecclesiastes, written a few centuries before the Common Era, wrote this, The generations come and go, but the earth abides forever. Because according to the evidence of their senses, that's exactly what happened. Seasons come and go, events come and go, but the earth is always there. Aristotle, and then sometime later, the Neoplatonists thought the same thing. They actually came up with various arguments for why the earth had always been here, why it always would be here, and why it wouldn't change much. Sure, you can have an earthquake, a volcano, but in the end, the earth would always be about the same. And I think to some extent that superstition persists into our day. We tend to think that the earth has always been what it is now and that it always will be about what it is now. That its buffering capacity, its carrying capacities are almost unlimited. And hand in hand with that superstition comes another, both in ancient times and now, and that is that we humans are too insignificant. We're earthbound parasites. Nothing we could do could possibly affect something so vast as this planet on which we live. If you are an ancient Greek or Hebrew, you might get away with holding those opinions. But the problem is in the 21st century, those ideas are no longer tenable. And trust me, I realize that this whole discussion is fraught. So without trying to tell you who to vote for, what platform to support, what party to get behind, I'm simply going to give you an idea of what is as close to the scientific consensus as exists. Alright, so welcome to the Know Thyself History Climate Change Summary. And I promise I will do my best not to bore you. So first, a couple of terms. Weather is a set of phenomena at a given moment at a given place. So if it's raining, sunny, whatever, that's the weather. The temperature, humidity, and so forth. Climate is a statistical model that is created based on the weather patterns over many years. 
So climate is long-term, weather is of the moment. Climate is your wardrobe. It's all the various items that you could choose from in your closet. Weather is what you're wearing on one particular day. So we could say that the climate in southern Greece is usually very sunny and balmy in the summer, but the weather is rainy on a particular day. That doesn't change the fact that the climate there is sunny. And although we usually talk about regional climate, when we speak about global climate, the region we're talking about is the entire Earth. And you can hear a lot of confusing information about climate. So you'll hear that CO2 levels are rising dramatically, but you'll hear that they're not nearly as high as they used to be in the past. You'll hear that the Earth is getting hotter, but it's not nearly as hot as it used to be in the past. You'll hear that we're still in an ice age. You will hear that volcanoes and sunspots have just as much to do with the temperature of the Earth as human activity. So there's all kinds of information out there, and it's not easy to sort out because the real picture is very complicated, and by isolating one or two variables, you can prove almost any point. But from what I can gather, some of the most reliable data about climate change over time, over vast swaths of time, comes from, believe it or not, geology. You can see the records of climate change in the rock. And so we actually know pretty well what the Earth's climate has been like for the past several hundred million years. Before that, it's not so clear, because the rocks get recycled, worn down, subsumed into the earth or something, spit out in volcanoes or whatever. But for the past several hundred million years, we can see the record of climate change in the rocks. Specifically, go back 541 million years to the Cambrian. If you don't remember the Cambrian, go back to episode 11 of Know Thyself, Life on the Installment Plan, for a quick review. So far, you might be saying, there is no way you could tell the record of climate change in the fossils. But there is a way. And I want to tell you about that first, even though it's a little tedious. Bear with me. Many of the elements on our planet have different isotopes. So they have the same amount of protons in the nucleus, but a different number of neutrons. So a higher isotope number is heavier than a lower isotope number of the same element. And in this case, when we're talking about climate change, we're talking about oxygen. Oxygen 16 is the common form of oxygen. It has eight protons, and eight neutrons in its nucleus. But there is another isotope of oxygen called oxygen-18. Oxygen-18 has eight protons and ten neutrons in its nucleus. It is much less common than oxygen-16, but it's also heavier than oxygen-16. And with just that much information, you can tell a whole world about the Earth's climate past. And I don't know how much to go into this, so you might want to skip ahead just a little bit. But oxygen-18 being heavier is going to have a higher ratio in areas that were hotter. Why is that? Well, because the lighter oxygen-16 will evaporate out of an area, leaving the heavier isotope oxygen-18. The lighter oxygen-16 does not evaporate when the air is cold enough. So in cold climates, you'll have a higher ratio of oxygen-16 to oxygen-18. And the amazing thing is that in fossils from way back in the Cambrian and every time thereafter, you can calculate the ratio of oxygen-16 to oxygen-18. And if you just want to summarize it, oxygen-16 is cool and light, oxygen-18 is hot and heavy. So when the ratio of oxygen-18 to oxygen-16 goes up, that was a hotter climate. Okay, so enough about that. You can tune back in if you were tuning out. Because here's the sum of it. After analyzing all these isotopes, what they found is that we are now in Drum roll, please. An ice age. 
That's correct. For the past 50 million years, we've had an incredibly cold climate. Now it gets warmer and colder within this ice age, and we're in a very warm part of a very cold spell. But it's an ice age. You have to go back 450 million years to find a period as cold as the last 50 million years have been. In fact, if you go back to the KT extinction event, you know, the end of the Cretaceous period, T-Rex times, when all the dinosaurs died off, the earth was very hot in those days. There was no ice at the poles, and the average ocean temperatures approached 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Think about that, 95 degree Fahrenheit oceans. Now they're what, 62 degrees average. This was a very hot place. Just for those of you who use Celsius, that's 35 degrees Celsius in the Cretaceous versus 17 degrees Celsius now. This was a very hot Earth. That's why in the Cretaceous you had amphibians and reptiles in the Arctic Circle. You have breadfruit trees living in the Arctic regions of Canada. You have coral reefs off the shores of New York. Atmospheric CO2 levels at that time were 1,700 parts per million. That is six times higher than CO2 levels were on Earth just before the Industrial Revolution. Geologists call this the super greenhouse Earth. There was a lot less variation between the temperature at the poles and the equators then than there is now. A lot less variation between night and day temperatures then than there is now because of the greenhouse effect of all that CO2. And because the oceans were so warm, there was no polar ice cap, so sea levels were much higher in the Cretaceous than they are now. And when I say much higher, I mean maybe 150 meters higher, 450 feet higher ocean levels then than they are now. You could have sailed an ocean liner right up through Nevada, right up between that corridor between the Rocky Mountains and the Sierra Nevadas. Mexico City was an island. St. Louis was a seaport. So the Earth is cold now, and sea levels are very low now compared to the past 450 million years. Now, let's narrow down our focus. Let's take that little window of the past 50 million years. There we see a very different picture. There has been a dramatic cooling trend over the past 50 million years. And it's not a steady line. It's not a gradual process of slowly cooling Earth. If you look at the graph, you'd see that there are fibrillations. There are brief periods of rising and cooling temperatures, but the overall trend for the past 50 million years is cooling. This general cooling trend has been punctuated by glacial maximums, periods of severe cold, which lead to the dramatic formation of huge glaciers. So if you look at the last million years, there have been several serious ice ages, and over the past 100,000 years, there have been even more. So the Earth is on a generally cooling trend punctuated by periods of higher and lower temperatures. Now remember, humans have only been on the planet for 200, if you want to be generous, maybe 300,000 years. During that time, we have been in this period of repeated glacial maxes, repeated ice ages. That's the only climate our species has ever known. And compared to that past 200,000 years, where we are now is very, very hot. So compared to the past several hundred million years, we're pretty darn cold. But compared to the time that our species has been on the planet, it's getting pretty hot. We're still nowhere near that super greenhouse Earth of the Cretaceous period. But just to give you an idea of how relatively warm it is, 18,000 years ago is the last glacial maximum, the last really cold dip in this graph. Now I want you to understand what I'm saying because it might not make sense to you at first. During the last glacial maximum, there was a sheet of ice a mile thick covering Vancouver, New York City, Moscow, Berlin. During the winter, 
sea ice extended all the way down to Tijuana, Mexico, and Barcelona, Spain. So this was cold, and that gives you an idea how relatively hot the Earth is now. One of the things that we have to address is why. Why has the Earth been cooling for about almost 50 million years? And why has it been getting hotter and cooler within that time frame? What causes it to wax and wane? Well, first, let's answer the big question. Why has the Earth been cooling for the past 50 million years? And to answer that, you don't have to look any farther than the Himalayan mountain range. That mountain range has been getting pushed higher and higher for 20 or 30 million years. And it's creating billions and billions of tons of exposed rock. Why does that matter? Well, I'll spare you the details for once. But as rock weathers, it draws CO2 out of the atmosphere. That's just the reaction that it goes through. So all that exposed rock, 8,000 meter peaks over millions of years drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere. About 80% of the CO2 was drawn out of the atmosphere when compared to the Cretaceous period. So if you go on Jeopardy, and the answer is Himalayan mountain range, the question is, why has the Earth been cooling for the past 50 million years? Now, what about these shorter cycles? What drives these brief periods of cooling and warming, brief geologically speaking, within the broader context of a cooling Earth? And the short answer there is solar energy input. Now, when the Earth has a high level of CO2, solar energy input can wax and wane, it can go up and down, and the Earth will stay hot. That's the point of a greenhouse. But when CO2 levels drop, the Earth, the climate, becomes much more responsive to alterations of solar input. So when the Earth's tilt is away from the sun, the Earth will get colder. When the Earth's eccentricity, when the orbit eccentricity takes the Earth farther away from the sun, the Earth will get colder. When there are no sunspots to speak of, then solar input decreases and the Earth will get colder. And all of those things go in cycles. Sunspots follow a cycle. Tilt of the Earth follows a cycle. The eccentricity of the Earth's orbit follows a cycle. And when all three of them combine to decrease solar input, and there's not much CO2 gas in the atmosphere, we enter what's called a glacial maximum, a very cold ice age. And so you can plot the ice ages of the last several hundred thousand years according to sunspots, eccentricity of the Earth's orbit, and its tilt. And the last time these three combined to decrease solar input the most was 18,000 years ago. And that's when you had that mile-high sheet of ice over New York City, Detroit, Berlin, etc. And that brings us to where we are now. According to this pattern, this pattern of eccentricity, tilt, and sunspots, the Earth should be going into another ice age, another glacial maximum. Our temperature should be dropping. But the temperature isn't dropping. It's actually going up. And why is that happening? Well, the answer to that is what you hear all the time. Greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Humans are little carbon dioxide generating machines. So several thousand years ago, the carbon dioxide level was 260 parts per million. Humans discover agriculture. We start burning down forests all over the place and the carbon dioxide levels rise to 280 parts per million before the Industrial Revolution. Methane levels also rise because we discover agriculture. Cows and other form of livestock tend to fart, and as they do that, they release methane into the atmosphere. Methane is much rarer, but much more powerful as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So even before the Industrial Revolution, human beings began raising the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. If you remember my episode on Genghis Khan, 
Genghis Khan killed so many people that he decreased the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and may have led to a brief period of global cooling. Since the time of the Industrial Revolution, since we discovered fossil fuels and began burning them in earnest, according to Dr. Dan Britt of UCF, we have released 600 gigatons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So again, the carrying capacity, the buffering capacity of our planet is not infinite. We continue to release over 30 gigatons a year of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Now, some people who deny the human role of climate change will argue that volcanoes release more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere than we do. But that is a ludicrous assertion. To give you an idea of how ludicrous it is, take all the volcanic activity on the entire planet. That includes volcanoes and sedimentary basins. All of that volcanic activity combined releases less than 1% of the CO2 into the atmosphere that human activity does. Over the thousands and thousands of years that humans were practicing agriculture, raising livestock, they released about 80 gigatons of CO2 into the atmosphere over thousands of years. We now release that same amount every two to three years into the atmosphere. In the thousands and thousands of years that humans have been burning down forests, practicing agriculture, raising livestock, the parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere rose from 260 to 280. In the past 180 years or so, since we really started loving fossil fuels, that number has gone up to over 400. 413 was the last one I saw. So in other words, CO2 levels have risen six or seven times as much in the past 180 years as they did in the previous several thousand years. These are real numbers. This is nothing made up. This isn't pseudoscience. This isn't some weird, hypothetical, conspiracy theory agenda. And it takes a certain willful, self-serving ignorance to fail to grasp what's happening. Because we are in a cycle now where sunspot activity is low. The Earth's eccentricity takes it farther away from the sun. The tilt of the Earth. All of these things should be adding together to take us into another ice age. And yet all the ice is melting. Global ocean temperatures are rising. Sea levels will rise. And it's all because of what we talked about earlier. When CO2 levels are low, solar input will fluctuate, the Earth will get warmer and cooler. When CO2 levels are high, it doesn't really matter what those solar cycles are doing. The Earth will continue to get warmer and warmer. So as I look at all this, I tend to get a little worked up. So if I've been a little strident, I apologize. But it is my firm conviction that humans will not have the collective political will to stop relying on easy, cheap sources of energy, such as fossil fuels. So I believe that the trend of adding more and more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere will continue. But just so that I don't leave you with pure doom and gloom and a hysterical end-time apocalyptic scenario, I have to say this. No matter how much CO2 we add to our atmosphere, scientists agree we can never make it into Venus. We will never become an 872-degree oven like the planet Venus. The other good news is this. People are working on ways to actively draw carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And that might be something we talk about on a future episode. All right, well, thank you for listening. This is Know Thyself History Podcast, our 35th episode. If you want to support the work that goes into making this podcast, please go to iTunes and subscribe. You can give us a rating. You can give us a review. Please make them generous, because this is a work in progress, as you can tell. Next time on the Adapt or Die series, 
we will be talking about the things that eat us. Human eaters. Should be an epic episode.